Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Just before we begin today, I've got a quick uh, advertisement for you at All Saints Church here in Fort Worth. Uh, we are hosting a conference on the 12th and 13th of November this year, just a couple of months away. And I want to make you aware of it. Uh, many of you will already be aware of it. But it's going to be a great couple of days. We've got Peter Lightheart of the Theopolis Institute coming on Friday the 12th and Saturday 13th of uh, November. It's going to be two full days of teaching and fellowship and worship. Uh, he's speaking on the subject, what is creation? Um, it's got a great value. We've got discounted tickets for families. If you've uh, got financial troubles or you're on a low income for whatever reason, uh, please don't let that be a barrier to your coming. Just check out the discounted prices on the church website, allsaintskirk.com allsaintskirk.com and if uh, you need any more information you should be able to find it there and you can book online it's going to be a fantastic couple of days and I wholeheartedly recommend it to you okay so without further ado then let's jump into where we were we've been thinking about what it is that we believe as a church and we've been working our way through uh, a series of uh, issues beginning with an overview of the whole of the scriptures and trying to get our handle on how the Bible itself presents its own historical and theological narrative to us and then we started thinking about particular angles on that big picture. We talked about the doctrine of salvation. We talked about eschatology. That is the unfolding story of history. And uh, in that previous episode, I hinted at where we were going next. We're going to think next about the family. Now, this arises um, directly from our, uh, consideration of eschatology, because as we will see, uh, Christian families play a central role, an absolutely critical role in the unfolding of history. And it's therefore appropriate, having thought about eschatology, we can think about this in a bit more detail. And that's what we're going to do today. Before we do that, I just want to issue a couple of qualifications, because there are always um, uh, uh, people for whom talking about Christian family uh, makes them think of the family they don't have. Uh, it may be painful to listen to this kind of material for some people for all kinds of reasons. It, it may be that um, uh, you've lost family members recently, been bereaved. It may be that uh, you're married and would like to have children and a family of your own, so to speak, but you're unable to uh, for some reason. And it may be that you'd like to be married, but you're not married. You're, you're single and wish you were married, able to, to begin your own family. None of this is intended to minimize the very real pain that's associated with all those uh, situations in life. And uh, I don't want by just making a brief comment now to suggest that they're trivial issues. They're not trivial issues. And uh, if they're things that trouble you, then I encourage you, please uh, get in touch with me or if you're a church elsewhere, uh, whoever your pastor is to, or a trusted Christian friend, somebody to talk about these things because they're not easy to handle. Uh, and in all this, we've got to recognize the Lord's providence and uh, he places different people in different circumstances. And there will be many people perhaps who are watching this who would love to have a family of their own or wish they could still go hang out with their dad or their mum or their uncle or their brothers and sisters, and they can't. And so I hope you won't feel it's insensitive. Nonetheless, for those who do have these opportunities, if we do go ahead and talk about this, recognising that in God's providence, this may be something that you face in the future, even if it's not something that's yours now. And if it is painful for you, then uh, the Lord bless you and I encourage you to seek uh, some kind of guidance or uh, just somebody to talk it over with, if that would be helpful to you. So with that um, caveat and qualification in place, 
Let's begin just by thinking about the relationship between what we were talking about, eschatology, and the family in broad terms. And this emerges uh, right from the beginning of the scriptures in a text that if you've been following these episodes, you're now extremely familiar with Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28, where God speaks for the first time to the newly created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he instructs them to fill the earth and subdue it. And that filling the earth is a crucial part of uh, what he's given them to do as his creatures, his people, and it's not something they were supposed to do on their own. This was a commission to them to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and that they should raise their children in such a way that their children join them in doing what they were commanded to do, to subdue the earth, that is to bring out its latent fruitfulness, to take the glorious, beautiful garden and turn it into a glorious, beautiful city, to take uncultivated wilderness and make it cultivated, beautiful land. Um, And that's part of what humanity was made for. And therefore, what you see right from the beginning is that the project of raising children, having children, raising children to be faithful disciples of the living God is intrinsic to human existence. This project is Uh, if you like, interfered with and disrupted, but not derailed entirely by the fall. You notice in Genesis 3, the curse on Adam and Eve in particular does not involve the inability to have children, but difficulty in raising them. And in one sense, that's all what we're talking about today. We're talking about how to handle the the challenges, the difficulties in raising children. We've got to recognize our own physical and moral frailty and weakness and sinfulness as we do that. But notice even in Genesis 3 in pronouncing that curse, this doesn't mean an end to the project of Genesis 1. It means difficulties with it. And as the story of scriptures, uh, scripture unfolds, you start to see uh, this uh, popping up again and again. And uh, in characteristic fashion, it takes uh, increasingly well-defined shape um, as uh, the story of uh, Abraham and then uh, Moses and the people of Israel unfolds. Uh, I want to point you to one or two places where we see that quite clearly, and it's helpful for us just to get a picture of um, where family life sits in God's plan for the world. Think of that famous passage that we've again looked at before in Genesis 17, when Abraham's 99 years old, and the Lord again commits to him in covenant that he will multiply him greatly, Um, and you've got all the way down to verse six. And then I want to read verses seven and eight. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Notice what is happening here. Uh, Explicitly, Abraham's offspring are being welcomed into the covenant people of God. It's being made explicit and clear that Children in believing families, so to speak, are born within the family of God. It's not that they're in a sort of spiritual no man's land, a kind of uh, halfway house between belief and unbelief, and who knows which way they're going to go. And it's certainly not the case that we are to treat them like little unbelievers. We're to treat them as members of the Christian family because they are members of the Christian family, because God says so, and he says so right here in Genesis 17. He continues, verse 8, I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, or the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Notice, it's to them that he will give the promised blessing of the land of Canaan, which he promised back in chapter 12. And then he concludes, and I will be their God. It's as though God sees the future, uh, and Abraham disappears from from the immediate picture 
at the end of verse 8, and it's their God that God is committed to be. So just to reiterate that and say it again uh, and emphasize it, it's uh, not the case that we are to regard our children as somehow outside the people of God. On the contrary, they're inside, within the people of God, part of God's family, and ought to be treated and raised as such. And that underlies a lot of how we ought to think of our our children. Just a couple of further notes on this. Um, This promise is connected with the giving of the covenant sign of circumcision under the older covenants and that will have some connection to what we talk about in some future episode or other uh, when we get to church and the sacraments and the place of children in relation to those uh, rites and rituals. Uh, Also notice of course that um, this commitment from God is not left behind when uh, we enter the new covenant age in Christ, quite the contrary. Um, As I've mentioned before again you see the value of um, looking at the big picture of the scriptures first off when we realise that uh, the angel who announced the birth of the Messiah to Mary specifically said that he was coming to fulfil the promises made to Abraham. Peter, speaking in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, says, uh, said the promise, a reference to this promise, as well as the promise of the Spirit, is for you and for your children and all who are far off. So again, you've got emphasised, it is the children of the people of God who are being spoken of here as part of God's family. That's how we should raise them, which means that raising Christian children is, if you like, eschatological spiritual warfare. We are building the kingdom by raising Christian children. This is part and parcel of what it means for the kingdom of God to grow. The kingdom of God grows among other ways, in and through the raising of multiple generations of faithful, believing children, whom God gives to his people, welcomes within their families and his family, and then urges us to raise them within that context. It's kingdom work, as a slogan I think I saw on somebody's t-shirt recently said, motherhood is kingdom work. Indeed it is, and it's vitally important uh, and should be recognised as such for that reason. Now that's of course connected Uh, with the activity of parents and for all that scripture says about God's initiative and God's grace in giving um, these promises to us and to our children scripture never divorces the grace of God from the promise the uh, call to faithfulness that that grace elicits and requires and so throughout the scriptures you find um, no tension at all between the sense that God is giving his children's children, these tremendous blessings of being within God's family, and at the same time requiring faithfulness of us as we raise our children in order that we and our children may experience these blessings. The the idea that our faith is to be lived out in faithful Christian lives doesn't at all cut against God's grace. It's in fact a gift of God's grace that he equips us for those lives, for that life of faithfulness. Um, God is at work in us both to will and to act according to his good purposes, as Paul says to the Philippians church. But nonetheless, we are to work out our salvation, which is the first thing he says to the church in Philippi. And you see this emphasis in the scriptures as they unfold in specific instructions to parents to take seriously the calling that they have as mums and dads. If, to put it another way, if this is such a big deal in God's economy that he gives children to his people and blesses them it jolly well ought to be a big deal for us a significant priority for us 
to raise our children within the faith that we have been bequeathed. And so, for example, that famous text in Deuteronomy 6, this is the Shema, the uh, um, the saying, uh, it means, Shema means literally here, and it comes from the first word in Deuteronomy 6, 4, here, O Israel, this is a slogan, a, a theologically rich slogan, which is still repeated today um, by many uh, orthodox old covenant uh, Jewish people who still, I guess, cling in some way to these these promises. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And indeed, they have been on the heart of faithful people down through the ages ever since uh, Moses. This is um, uh, the text that Jesus had in mind uh, when he was asked to summarize um, the law. And he summarized it, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, Deuteronomy 6 and then um, uh, Leviticus 19. Well, what does he go on to say? Uh, you shall teach them diligently to your children. But the very next thing, after they need to be on your hearts, they need to be on your children's hearts. And how are they going to get on your children's hearts? Well, you are to teach them. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Just the daily routines of life. You're in your house, hanging out in the morning at breakfast time or in the evening uh, before you go to bed. You just chat about these things, what the Lord has done for us. When you walk by the way, when you're going about your business, you know, in the ancient world, you're walking down the road with your sons to get, get, get into the family farm or you're working in the workshop or you're working in the house, whatever it is you're doing. In the modern world, we have our equivalents, don't we? Um, whatever it is that we're doing with our kids, these are the things that ought to animate our lives and our conversation. When you lie down, when you rise, you know, whatever you're doing, um, last thing at night, first thing in the morning, these ought to be the things that shape our conversation and our lives with our children. And of, all, of course, not just the, um, the spoken conversation, but all the unspoken things that we show our children by the way we live. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and write them on the doorpost of your houses and on your gates. Well, all that stuff comes after we've addressed the children. So loving the Lord your God is followed immediately by this imperative to teach our children that they have every reason to do the same because his grace has been shown to them. You see how God's grace and our responsibility to be faithful interact. We, we have a God who loves our children. And so we're to love him and show our children that they have good reason to love him too. Of course, this theme continues um, throughout the scriptures. You don't need me to show you this. Um, uh, Ephesians 6, we'll come to actually come to Ephesians 6 in a second, you knew I was going there. Um, you see where Deuteronomy 6 goes wrong actually in the days of the judges, when in Judges chapter 2, um, the people served the Lord all the days of uh, Joshua, uh, but then Joshua and all that generation died and then you wonder what's going to happen next. And the next generation didn't know the Lord and didn't know what he'd done for Israel. Why didn't they know the Lord and what he'd done for Israel? The answer is, that the people of that generation had foolishly neglected Deuteronomy 6. They'd not passed on the faith that they'd received and the love for the Lord that they'd received to their children. And so no surprise, you have the tailspin chaos of 400 years of, uh, of brutality and ungodliness and sin in the days of the judges. Well, that's what happens when you neglect such an important commandment, which is, as I just mentioned a moment ago, uh, reiterated in one way or another in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4 is Paul's way... Um, Ephesians 6 4 is Paul's way of doing it fathers don't provoke your children to anger but bring them up 
in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we've talked about this before, and there's actually a whole series of podcasts on this, which I think should be fairly straightforward to find on the church YouTube channel. But um, give me a shout if you can't find it, and we'll dig them up and put them on the website so they can be found easily. But what you see here, again, in short, is this is how the people of God are to live out the the calling that we have to be faithful in view of God's grace and kindness to us in blessing our children. So that, if you like, is the um, theological picture. And in a moment or two, I want to get to um, some kind of specific areas of practical implications for this. But before I do that, I want to just spend a minute or two thinking about the relationship between this and eschatology and culture in particular. When we think about the culture wars, that is to say, and I know the phrase is somewhat hackneyed, but let me uh, tell you what I think, what, what I mean by it. I mean that the conflict um, that from a Christian perspective, the conflict that has erupted over the years between a Christian's attempts to live out our way of life as faithfully as we can um, and uh, the incursions against that way of life from uh, ideologically uh, disparate, ungodly, unbelieving sources. When we think of the culture wars, what we tend to think about is ideological battles in the public square and Capitol Hill and social protests and various specific things like pro-life movement and so on. And I have no uh, beef with any of those. In fact, some of those things I think are uh, tremendous causes to throw our weight behind. But uh, what I want to just encourage us to think as deeply as we can about is this. Um, the program that God has set forth in the scriptures for cultural renewal and transformation is extremely long term, multi-generational, down through the generations, faithful parents seeking to raise faithful children and then trying to raise faithful grandchildren and so on and so on and so on. And what we are to see is the gradual accumulation down through the ages of a groundswell of Christian faithfulness that carries its surrounding culture with it. And it's striking to me that much of what leaps into our minds when we think of cultural conflict or ideological conflict as Christians is very short term by comparison. We're concerned about what the state governor is going to do next week or what our president might say next month or what the mayor said yesterday and i don't deny that those things have some significance but they operate on a very different time scale from that on which god's program for cultural renewal operates through families and children and i just want to encourage you to meditate on that and just consider where we'd want to put our energies to offer an analogy that might be helpful to some of you, it won't be helpful to everybody, but um, think of an analogy from the financial world. Imagine you're trying to invest for the future, invest for your retirement or something, just to save so you can look after yourself and not be a burden to other people. Let me tell you, there is no investment strategist in the world who can give you even a moderately uh, secure way of doubling your money overnight or by next week or even by next year, or the next two or three years. A responsible investment strategist would say, if there's money that you're going to need to have access to in the next two or three years, it needs to be an extremely safe investments with low volatility and so on. But there are many investment strategists who will be able to give you many different 
investment approaches for gradually accumulating uh, returns on your investment over two or three or four decades. And there might be ups and downs in those, which means you're best not to pay attention to the daily noise and the intraday reports from the Standard & Poor's 500 index. You don't want to be looking at the ups and downs of today and yesterday and what happened after lunch and these tiny half percent fluctuations because what you've got is a vision that focus on the big, focuses on the big picture. In other words, if you've got a responsible financial advisor, he will urge you not to be concerned about the noise from last week and this week and today and tomorrow, but to keep your eye on the long term. And in the long term, um, even fairly bad investment strategies tend historically to produce reasonably good results in the long term. But there's nothing that we can do to mitigate the ups and downs of yesterday and today. And if we become obsessed by them, then we'll divert our attention away from the long term program that is actually going to offer some kind of moderately decent chance of good returns. Now, I apologize if that doesn't help you if you find the analogy with finance somewhat unseemly, but it's actually quite a good analogy, I think, in that it represents the danger that we get distracted by the short term noise and ups and downs of our culture when really the best way for us to be in, uh, changing the world in the long term is in the long term. And there's something in us, I think, which is somewhat immature and always wants to rattle the cage today in order to produce change tomorrow. Well, it's historically never worked, and there's no good reason to think it will work in the future, and particularly given that God seems to operate on uh, longer-term timescales. So with all that, let me just um, spend the last few minutes talking about some more gritty practical implications to this. I want to talk with well, us three or four areas here. I don't know whether we'll get to them before we run out of time. If we don't, then we'll come back and talk to uh, talk about them uh, in a future episode. First, one of the practical implications of this uh, is that it's good to have children. Okay, it's a good thing to have children. Psalm 127, Psalm 128, well worth looking at. Um, I'll just read a couple of uh, extracts from that, those, those two psalms, which are kind of coupled together in a chiasm, if you didn't realize that. They are, and the, the beginning of Psalm 127 corresponds with the end of Psalm 128. I'll leave you to work that out. And there's actually a video, a daily devotion video about that somewhere as well. Um, but 127 verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And you've got similar sentiments uh, in Psalm 128 about uh, the children around the table being like olive shoots and the, the, the fruitful vine, the wife who gives birth to these children, the fruitful vine within the house. And that's an image, a positive and beautiful image of fruitfulness uh, among the people of God. So having a family, having children is a profoundly good thing to do. But, and you could all sense the but coming, um, there have been over the years a number of simplistic and uh, I think potentially quite damaging uh, ways of trying, perhaps in good faith, but somewhat foolishly, I'm afraid, to put this teaching into practice in a way that makes generalizations that don't apply wisely everywhere. Let me, tell, let me illustrate what I mean. Suppose we thought, we read Psalm 121, we thought, well, having children is good, so let's have one child. Is that a good idea? Yes, great. Well, maybe having two children is a good idea as well, because two is more than one, right? So that'd be good. Three children, four children, wonderful. Five children, great. What about ch 10 children? Well, you probably know people who've got 10 children in their families. You might think that's fantastic. 
Well, 20 children then, or 30, or 50, or 60. Where, where, do, you, where do you stop? And uh, here's the, the issue. Um, there are no breaks on this thing if all we think is children are good. So where are the breaks? Well, there are a couple of sources. One is to say, well, biology provides the breaks. And so there have been people who have argued over the years that basically a couple should have as many children as they can physically, just given biological limitations. And typically, if there's uh, no infertility or uh, medical problems intervene, that might result in extremely large families, which in some cases would be absolutely wonderful. But did you notice that scripture also encourages us to reflect thoughtfully and honestly on another factor which might cause us to press pause at a certain point before we ran into the brick wall of biology? Remember that God's faithfulness to his children is coupled with and calls from us and requires from us faithfulness from us in raising our children. And so actually, it might be a wise thing to consider, well, how many children do I think I could raise faithfully? What about my personal capacities? Uh, what about the needs of my children? Uh, and there might be all kinds of reasons connected with who you are. And, and if you're married, obviously you'd be married. If, if you're married already and you're thinking about um, children with your wife or your husband, their capacities and so on. Um, what they're used to, um, what you hope to give your children in terms of contact, time, all these sorts of things, uh, particular special needs that your children may have or that you may have. There might be all kinds of reasons that make you think, you know what, I, I think I could have a reasonable stab at being a faithful mum or a faithful dad to two, three, four, five children, but I think I would struggle with six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Whereas somebody else might think, I'd draw the line at two or three, and then somebody else might say, I think we probably could draw the line at nine, 10, 11. We need to be careful not to sit in judgment against one another at, over those decisions and to recognize there are actually very good reasons for uh, pressing pause or maybe even pressing stop before biology does. Biology is not the only legitimate constraint on family size. Our own capacity to raise faithful families is also biblically a constraint that ought to be taken into account. A couple of other things then. Uh, practical implications of the promises of God to our children are, include that they should be welcomed with us into the worship of the church. We want to include our children uh, in worship as much as we possibly can. Uh, so that they can learn to worship God. That, after all, is what it's all about. That's what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. Um, uh, faithful children, children who worship the living God, not just children in the abstract, but children who, as they grow up, learn to worship, learn from the word, learn from their fellowship with other people to become fully formed and mature and rounded members of the family of God. And so a great deal of um, uh, effort ought to be expended in trying to work out the best possible ways to integrate children into our worship. And as it happens, um, 
it just is the case that the kind of worship that we'll actually we'll talk about in a future episode when we start thinking about uh, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and our worship in particular. It just is the case that the kind of worship that is somewhat more formal and structured in orientation is easier, if anything, for children to participate in. Uh, we'll, like I said, we'll think about that in more detail when we think about um, the doctrine of the church. We'll also think about the sacraments and so on. Um, uh, one final thing, and we're not going to get through all the implications today, so I'll have to postpone some of them for another time. Uh, but the whole uh, challenge of raising faithful children raises the issue of discipline and discipleship. Uh, how it is that we go about practically uh, seeking to raise um, our kids, and particularly uh, You've all had the experience, you bring your child to church and they choose that moment to fly off the handle and have a screaming fit. And you sort of wish just for that fleeting moment that maybe wouldn't it be easier if this was a church where the kids got hoiked out to some kind of kids childcare or Sunday school or something so that nobody else had to hear them scream. Well, you know what? It's actually a wonderful symbiosis there. Um, The fact that we bring our children with us into worship exposes to us as parents that, oh man, I've got a job to do with my two-year-old. We've all been there with my one-year-old, with my three-year-old. He ought to be able to sit and pay attention for a couple of minutes longer than he is. And I've got a challenge to seek to uh, encourage and train him or her to listen to mum, listen to dad, learn to sit still. All these basic disciplines of life, along with all the more complex disciplines of relating to other people, developing godly relationships with people their own age, and with people younger than them, and with people older than them. Discipleship should be construed in these terms, really. How do we teach and train our children to relate well in the world? Uh, first to God in worship, and then of course to each other, to their siblings, uh, to their parents, to other adults, to younger children, and so on. And it is a challenge. Of course it's a challenge. And it's just, uh, I think, a happy, though challenging coincidence that uh, the fact that our children come with us into worship here at All Saints forces on us as parents the urgent priority of teaching them to relate graciously and lovingly and sometimes quietly to the people around them. Nobody minds, incidentally, nobody minds in the slightest if we have the occasional squeak and the occasional squawk from the two-year-old who's a bit uncomfortable and it's, we've been in church for an hour and a quarter and I want to go home I want to, or I want to stand up and do something else. Nobody minds that. Please don't feel um, anxious about that as a parent. But it is a wonderful stimulus to us, isn't it? And we should think, again, more about that uh, in a future episode. Uh, I didn't get to talk about education. Well, no surprise, education would get uh, take us off on a long um, uh, excursus to think in more detail about that. But we, we will do it at some point in the future. But I think that'll do us for now. So until next time, God bless and bye for now. <laughs>